Uh, just to check with you, Mike, um, it, since we like to kind of, um, you know, mention how we know each other personally, if we have a guest on, is yeah. it okay if I mention that I know you from the Edwards campaign? That was the first kind of back in the day yeah, thing? Yeah, well, you know, we knew each other before then because of Democracy Arsenal. Oh my God, oh my God, I totally forgot about that. we were writing that. on Democracy Arsenal back in 2005. Right? Oh my God, wow, I totally got the date, yeah, I... Democracy Arsenal has almost been erased from my memory. That's really interesting. Yeah, man. That's what we started that in the spring. And because I remember because I moved, I think that we started it probably around January or February 2005. Wow. Yes, that's uh, right. That's right. Okay. And then we were both trading, you know, doing our weekly posts and having our back and forth and all of our. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah that- you and I would get together. For coffee, occasionally, because I think I was at Wilmer Hale at that point yes. before I went to Richmond and worked for Mark Warner. And then and then the Edwards campaign was... 2008. 2007. Two, yeah, seven, yeah, seven, right. Seven, okay. Yeah. So yeah. Democracy Arsenal is a website, Mike, that, that you started and Shadi worked on? What was this? <laughs> Tell me about it. I, I, I'm, totally, I'm totally out of the loop here. No, de- so Democracy Arsenal was a... It was a collective national security blog that... Suzanne Nossel started and that the Center for American Progress supported, I think with help from the Century Foundation. And we would, there were a group of five or six contributors. And the whole point was to have us have this kind of individual and collective conversation engagement with all these, with national security from progressive tech and, but whatever that meant. And this was in the wake of John Kerry having lost the prior year. And it was really very illustrious. I mean, it was, um, Suzanne Nossel, Shadi, um, Derek Cholet was in it. Oh, oh uh, wow, yes, that's right, yeah. And then Heather, Heather Hurlburt mm. and me, and I think that, was there Was there anybody else? That was the, the core group, I think, yeah. And that's that's kind of how I started becoming a blogger, and that was my entry point into this world where I started to write um, quite regularly, and that's how I started. Um, through that, I got to know some of the folks in the so-called juice box mafia, mm. Ezra Klein, Magical Gladiators. I didn't know them well, but that was when everyone was kind of getting into that blogging space. So that was in some ways the golden age of blogging. And, you know, part of me misses that. But um, anyway, yeah, so we should... Um, uh, First, uh, Mike, let me just say thanks so much for joining us um, on on the podcast. And um, this is exciting. So just to tell our listeners, we have a special guest, Michael Signer, uh, the former mayor of Charlottesville. He was actually mayor of Charlottesville during the events of the summer of 2017, the Unite Unite the Right rally that led to um, to one death and quite a bit of chaos and, and violence in this city. So Mike was really right in the middle of that. And um, he has a new book out. Um, it's called Cry Havoc, Charlottesville and American Democracy Under Siege. He's also the author of two previous books. Um, the first one was Demagogue, The Fight to Save Democracy from Its Enemies. And that was a really important book for me because that was before Trump. It was before we started talking a lot about demagogues and the rise of right-wing populists. And I think Mike was one of the authors who really got into this tension uh, between small L liberalism and small D democracy and what happens if people and parties who are illiberal or have very problematic views come to power through legitimate democratic means. Um, The second book um, was Becoming Madison, The Extraordinary Origins of the the Least Likely Founding Father, 
um, which I have not read, but I want to now because um, it sounds very relevant. But anyway, maybe just to kind of get the conversation um, going, um, you know, obviously your book came out at an odd time in March when COVID was starting. And it's weird to even mention COVID because I feel like a lot of America has kind of moved on and we're not really talking about COVID all that much anymore, even though it's still obviously a, a, you know, a major health threat um, for, for many Americans. And I was just sort of joking um, to my parents. I was actually in Pennsylvania earlier today, then drove um, da- uh, back down to D.C. And we were talking about how um, we're at like day seven or day six of the post-COVID era, where we've sort of adapted to COVID being this background reality, but it's no longer dominating the headlines. And obviously what is dominating the headlines, and rightly so, is first of all um, the, the, the murder of George Floyd, police, police brutality, the resulting protests, unfortunately also riots and violence um, that has been, you know, a small part of that, but still a part, you know, a part of that overall um, context that we're in right now with curfews and so on. So maybe just, Mike, you know, drawing on your own experiences of going through a very chaotic moment in Charlottesville, how are you processing everything that's going on right now? What are you thinking the last couple of days? Just, you know, yeah. Well, that's a, it's a great question. Um, and you're going to, I guess you're going to prompt me to, to, to take a step way back and try and I'm, um, first of all, it's a great, it's great to be with you guys. And it's, and I really appreciate um, the show and, and Shadi, it's our long friendship and it's, I'm looking forward to this discussion. Um, so, you know, you're, you're making me um, realize that I do see these things as connected and, you know, p- people have asked me about what is the name of the, what's the title of the book about cry havoc, which is a, it's a, quote from Julius Caesar by um, by Shakespeare. And it doesn't actually make a lot of sense taken literally because it's a battle cry. And there's not really, uh, it, the book isn't about anybody crying that's going into battle. It's more metaphorical. It's about crying about havoc. And the book is about havoc. And what are the, we're in a time of havoc. And my experience from becoming mayor of a, of a city that was really a microcosm for the country under Trumpism where you had High, high tempers, distempers, um, the the kind of passions roiling on uh, across the political aisle. Um, it, uh, you know, I, I, there's been very perceptive comments by like Peggy Noonan, who's who's warned us that you know Donald Trump is kind of trolling the whole country, and he has been since he started his campaign. And you know, my, I'm a classically trained political theorist before I, you know, with a, with a doctor before I went to law school and decided I had to figure out a way to make a living, which was to be a practicing attorney and be involved in politics and government. However, I, however I could. Um, and so my mind during a lot of these things, and especially when I write about them, but and sometimes when I, when I've spoken about them from, you know, from behind the dais, so when I've, when I've done commentary, really, I, I, I go to the, this kind of challenge that we've always had since the very beginning of democracy, which is how do we, how do we channel the passions, especially in incredibly uh, disruptive, angry times. And there can be sources of that anger or passion. Um, 
And a lot of it can be highly le legitimate or important or uh, useful passion. But the founding fathers were fixated on this problem, which was how did you design a system that could allow people to to feel such intense, um, you know, collective emotional experiences and form factions and break into factions, but still allow them to work together to solve problems and get things done, not tear the country apart. And the thing about this era that we're in is you have both somebody who is a demagogue classically, and I, and I have written a lot about this, demagogues like stirring up ungovernable passions and using it for political benefit and basically creating a state within the state that they alone control through that kind of connection. And that's what Trump has always been about since he got into this race for president. Very alarming. Uh, and then you have this combination, this incompetence, which is tied in with this flamethrowing, which is tied in with his political method. I just wrote a piece that came out in Time today um, talking about the similarities between Minneapolis and Charlottesville. And, you know, I was saying that when he when he responds with incendiary actions and they seem like gaffes, they're not gaffes, they're a feature and not a bug of his politics, because what he is doing is he's trying to create this path through the Electoral College using white nationalism to stoke his base and to get votes. And uh, and I think that the reason that the COVID crisis was so uniquely enraging and frustrating was because uh, there was a collapse in governance and just in, in, in caring about the details and the facts and the right policies and almost, you know, you could liken it to the hard work that goes into building an immune system. And because he's interested in a passionate demagogic policy, he didn't care about the expertise and the, the careful fact-based policy, wonky deliberative stuff that goes into the other side, the kind of boring, important side of the vote of democracy. And similarly with this, um, with what happened in Minneapolis, he's done exactly the opposite of what you would expect the president to do, which is to take a measured tone to try and calm the country down to focus us on the reforms that we need. Instead, he has uh, thrown fuel on the fire and it's absolutely enraging. I mean, I think that he is directly responsible for, um, uh, and I said it at the time, that it was, it's all very similar to what happened in Charlottesville. I, I, I said when these, rally, when these rallies happened that the blame went to the doorstep of the White House because he had thrown open the door to including white nationalists in his domestic political coalition and he was stoking them. Um, very intentionally, just as he stoked public alarm about COVID and did not, did the opposite from taking measured fact-based kind of public health, you know, public policies. And then he's done exactly the same after Minneapolis. So you're seeing a people deal with basically having the, the, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like we're being manipulated to be as out of our minds as we possibly can for the electoral benefit of somebody who sees a path through the electoral college and through these his base in these different states, and we're all being trolled, and it drives people crazy. It drives people crazy, and uh, so it's so anyway that that's how I would how I see the connection between all of these different um, isolate. They yeah. seem to be isolated events, but they're actually connected very deeply. Yeah, and, and that's why you know when I was reading reading your book, um, it, it, it's it felt to me eerily relevant. 
and coming, you know, and I think yeah. it's, that's why it's really important for folks who are interested to, to give this a read. And, you know, I, I thought it was excellent. Um, and uh, also easy to read. I went through it really quickly and I enjoyed it and I took a lot of notes. Um, there's a number of fascinating parts. There's actually a lot that, you know, I, I hope we can touch on some of that. But, um, you know, the one, maybe, you know, one thing that just in kind of hearing you talk right now that, that stands out to me is that um, the tension between obviously passion and reason, the role of social mm -hmm. media to kind of in, mm -hmm. in stoking tensions, the fact that there's an absence of leadership at the top, all of that was present in in the tragic events of, of Charlottesville. Um, and um, but maybe, you know, um, Demir, I, I know that we're, we're both Demir and I are both quite active on uh, Twitter that may or may not mm -hmm. change over time. I feel like I'm, it's starting to drive me crazy, especially the last few days. Uh -huh. Because yep. I feel like people are, you know, people, look, it's understandable, you know, so a lot of people are losing their shit on both sides. Um, mm -hmm. And um, so I think it's important to kind of uh, establish some, some distance from all that. But Demir, uh, you know, I don't know if that's been your experience the last few days on social media. What, no, so, so, Mike, you know, I, I, I also quite enjoyed the book. And again, we can so many different ways to unpack it, but just to sort of maybe jump in a little bit more of some of the connections, what struck me. Uh, you, you spent some time, and it's a, it's a, it's a subject you, you come back to over and over again. It's, it's, what I loved about the book is, is it gets you a feel for what politics on the city level is. And, you know, you have that quote from Hannah Arendt at the beginning, which is, you know, about, mm -hmm. about people just uh, tuning out politics in so many ways. And reading it, I, I, I felt like I, you know, I'm clearly also very much derelict on this. You know, you live in D.C., you sort of get involved in these sort of big issues and big ideas, and you... You're, you're less connected to the community, which is the, the essence of democracy in so many ways. But what struck me about, you know, as you're describing a lot of this, I feel like it's already creeping in there. You know, this it's 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 almost like symbolic warfare, right? It's it's um, you spent some time early on talking about the fact that that um, uh, how how there this there are these fights uh, about you know just purely symbolic gestures and meaning that need to be done. And then you, at the same time, are pushing for more sort of pragmatic solutions to actually move the ball forward that, that you know, doesn't just necessarily scratch the, 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 the sort of surface itch. What struck me in the last few days, and again, while reading your book as well, is this idea that, that you know, and Trump is very much a big part of this, it's, it's creating these large symbols that, you know, uh, almost, I don't know, addressing them doesn't resolve anything, and it just creates these massive divisions that are almost impossible to, to, uh, to bridge. I mean, that, that is another thing that populists and, and demagogues do, right. but it, it's really struck me right. that that's what's happening. Right. Yeah, I'm really worried, and, and you know, I, I talk in the book about how with, with, with some kind of, you know, sense of, I guess, humor— about how my first speech as mayor, I talked about two things. I wanted, to, I didn't want a, a politics of the passions. I wanted one where we could have some reason and some facts to what we were doing because Charlottesville City Council had a reputation for being really uh, kind of out of control in a circus and people were attacking each other from behind the, da the dais using ad hominem attacks, which you're not supposed to do. We weren't even under... Robert's Rules of Order, which seems like kind of a silly little thing, but it meant that you just had these endless debates without even emotion on the table. 
Um, and I talked about how I didn't want a politics of symbolic action. How I wanted to focus on on results and policies that would be implemented. You know, the, the classic example, like uh, re- recently toward the end of my tenure on city council, we voted um, to disinvest from um, uh, oil and gas and defense stocks, which was symbolic because we didn't actually have any um, in the one fund that this would have operated on. It's purely, you know, so, so that was the sort of thing that I was against. Um, but the problem is that in our politics today, which is so dominated by these media and by by media, I mean the social media platforms and the social media platforms were designed to get adolescent brains addicted to them. Right. That's how these the big several ones, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter were designed. And so all of us have our kind of lizard brains firing all the time. And, you know, you talk to more and more elected officials and I'm friends with a lot of mayors you know, local elected officials around the country. And we all talk about it. You kind of, there will be some issue where it's, it's like it's been Facebooked and people will come to the chambers outraged in a very distinctive way. And they have a hero on one side or they usually have villains and they perceive the issues in a very caricatured, simplified way. And they're not interested and it's hard to engage them in the actual granular the crucial details about how do you fix, you know, the affordable housing problem you have in your city, or how do you fix the, the, the lack of uh, black teachers in your public schools, or how do you address climate change at the local level or, 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 you know, a host of other really important issues. It's, it's, um, you know, and, and, and that's actually the important work to be done. And it's really, um, it's interfered with when we have a, a politics of constant, simplified outrage, you know, where, where the victory is even worse, where the victory, you, you think you've won where you can just outperform the other side, which is what Trump is so good at. Uh, and, Mike, and like, it yeah. doesn't matter whether there's a wall. It just matters whether he has sort of bullied you into believing that he has successfully performed that there's a wall right he's created the symbol of the wall and it's it's again yeah. it's it's like yeah exactly the wall it's 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 that these these symbols don't relate to reality so much anymore right. it's it's incredibly dangerous yeah. because i uh, i mean my view is that when you when you when you break politics from facts and from the uh, from the reality of what people's lives what what it, the stakes for people's lives like what, what what does the affordable housing actually create places where people live is your you know are you achieving any measurable outcomes with with climate change are you educating kids you know um are you are you actually helping people re-enter society after you know are you actually dealing after they're incarcerated are you actually dealing with systemic racism um if you don't care about any of those other things, then the people who are winning in politics are just winning because they're performing. And then the performance just becomes about showmanship and uh, and at the very worst, it becomes about might makes right. Mm-hmm. And that that really is the absolute most dangerous thing that we could have is that it becomes, you know, it's like the, the comparison would be between a UFC match you know, or, or just a, like a gladiator match where it's just, it's just whoever can bloody the other person the most to the, with the, with the, with the crowd cheering as opposed to a, a kind of competition with rules. Yeah. And, um, and, and, yeah. And Mike, I have to say that I, I, you know, I felt, I felt kind of bad for you when I was reading about <laughs> your tenure as mayor for some of these reasons. Yeah. Certainly the fact that social media 
intensified a lot of the attacks on you. But I, you know, I have to confess. I mean, I I don't actually know a lot about how local or city government works, and it's actually rare to read a book that opens that opens you up to mm-hmm. an entirely different universe. And I felt when I was reading yeah. about your city council meetings, and you know, people might think, oh, city council meetings, those are boring and who cares? That there were parts of the book where I was in rapt attention, like, wow. Yeah, totally. This is what city council meetings are like. And you go in a lot of detail and I like that you did that. But I, I also started to feel, oh my God, why did Mike decide to do this, and I was surprised that first of all, the mayor of Charlottesville is a part-time position. You only get like something like nineteen thousand dollars a year, and you already had your day job as a lawyer. Yeah, and people yeah. are, and so you're 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 at these city council meetings, and people are, you know, um, accusing you of being a Mussolini in the making. They're calling you yeah. a tyrant, an authoritarian, yeah. a racist. Yeah anti-semitic attacks and i'm just like wow why is he you know i'm just like what is going on here um and and i i really like that you go into details about how charlottesville unlike you know many other cities has has a weak mayor form of government there's other Mm -hmm. there there's Mm -hmm. other cities like south bend indiana which a lot of americans are now familiar with Mm -hmm. because of our Mm -hmm. i guess our mutual friend uh mayor pete who um, you know was a strong mayor and had had quite a bit of executive authority in that regard. Mm-hmm. You didn't, so people would look up to you as the mayor and as the figurehead and as someone who sets the tone. But then you had to go back to them and be like, "Hey, you guys are pissed off, but I actually can't do anything about that because I'm a weak mayor, and it's actually the city manager." And I've never even heard of this term, the city manager, who's like a kind yeah. of mini. I don't. Sorry, you correct me if I'm wrong, but he's yeah. kind of like a mini dictator. No, well, maybe, maybe that's not fair. He's a but. CEO. He's a CEO. So the, 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 yeah, and a lot of – so look, the, the reason that I thought it was so important to go into this kind of detail, um, it, not only because a lot of the – you know, a lot of incredible stories are, are in the details. I mean, like you watch – you know, I, I joke a lot of the time, like Parks and Rec, I would, I would say in some of my speeches, is not a satire because you watch Parks and Rec and a lot of local government will have these sort of colorful figures and these – dilemmas about what happens with you know some hyper local thing like a tree or a park structure or whatever but uh you have in 50 percent of american cities you have a model of government that is built on corporations on corporate governance so you have a board of directors who is the city council and the mayor in that form of government is basically the chair of the board and the board hires and fires the ceo like in a corporation who is the city manager and the city manager has 100% operational authority and has the day-to-day, by law, the right to hire and fire people, to direct people and staff to do things and not do things. They're the emergency manager for the city under state and federal law. So Charlottesville has that form of government. And But the thing was, I had been such a proactive mayor. I had taken uh, – the, the prior mayor was a really nice guy, but he'd been kind of fairly passive, and I wanted to – I wanted to stir a lot of things up and I started a lot of new programs and I was spearheading a lot of new initiatives in innovation and equity and um, uh, regionalism, a whole host of other things. And it created a lot of confusion when the public, when the government started making mistakes. And 
uh, when we were overwhelmed, especially the police and the communication systems of the city, which is what happened during these three white nationalist events that happened in 2017. And the public had seen me as this very proactive, you know, that looked like I was a strong mayor, but I, but I wasn't. And I didn't have the actually the legal authority to, to be involved in policing or even know what was happening or even be briefed sometimes because the mayor is not in the chain of authority with policing matters. And it created, it was incredibly painful, um, you know, obviously both to be blamed, but not to even know the right answers about what had happened with when the police did not interfere in the massive uh, street fighting that occurred and the assaults and batteries that, that happened during that awful day when the, there was this Vice News documentary that really showed people the police kind of standing by and I was blamed for this and it took me months even to find out what had happened because we had to commission this independent investigation. Um, and the reason that I thought it was helpful to tell all this is that, uh, you know, I was just listening to an ep- to an interview on The Daily this morning, the New York Times wonderful podcast with um, Jacob Fry, the, the mayor of Minneapolis. And it was a story I really could empathize with because he was saying the reason that they haven't been able to stop police brutality in Minneapolis is because of these very local issues they have with the police union and the contract with the police. And he they have they have a weird system there where they have a strong city council and the council runs a lot of aspects of the government through these committees. But the mayor is a weak mayor, except for the fact that in Minneapolis, the mayor actually does control the police. Hmm. Very odd. So they have a weak mayor who oversees the police, but he does not oversee the fire department. So each city has its own story to tell. And in a crisis, there's commonality in suffering. (laughs) And he was saying in his uh, interview this morning, that at a lot in just even in the decisions over the last week, he's been faced repeatedly with with a hard choice where there is no good option at all. It's just a, it's just a choice among bad outcomes. And I wanted to, especially in this book, where that's most kind of grievously the case, um, the Confederate statue decision was one. And I go into very painful detail about the public debate that we had about what to do about these two statues and how divided even the black community was the activist community, the recommendations we got from this Blue Ribbon Commission that we set up to keep these statues inside the city. And that totally changed. And I changed my position when the city was invaded by terrorists who were making these icons their rallying cry. And then somebody was killed. There's that story. There was the story about the First Amendment. A lot of people wanted me to do things that I was not capable of under Supreme Court law, which was to stop hate speech from happening in the city. Hate speech is absolutely protected if it's not connected to planned imminent unlawful acts. And, but it was, it was so hard to explain that to people because they didn't want to hear it. Uh, I didn't want to say it, but they were the facts and the, the law is incredibly clear. And, you know, and I wanted to tell the story of what it's like having to you know, it's been a very pressured couple of years, repeatedly deliver hard truths that will make nobody happy and make decisions where there's no, uh, there's no, there is no answer that will, that will, that feels good. There just isn't. And that's a lot of what government is, especially now, because people are so angry about so many things. And there's so, there's such a laser and social media makes it so easy to you know, to take over a city council meeting and disrupt it, heckle people, for instance. Yeah. And I thought it was worth telling the whole painful story in all of its kind of gory detail, because I think that 
they're still learning to come from it. And I think this is what public service is now. And you asked me, you know, why would anybody do this? It's not the first time I've been asked that in connection <laughs> with this book. I have a whole answer about that. Um, but I think, you know, at the very, very least, this is what public service is now. And we need public service because the alternative is, is authoritarianism. It's just having party apparatchiks appointed to run city councils, right? And is having no dissent allowed in a city council chamber. And nobody wants that. So I wanted to, to say what it's like now so that we can really kind of gainsay what the, what the reality is. I feel that this is, it's unacceptable to have this level of heckling. And I've fought a lot of battles against this. I think that we need deliberation in our politics to get to the most progressive ends that are the most disruptive. We need to be able to listen and to be able to use facts and we need to fight back against this Trumpism in our politics where it is only about symbols and it is only about might makes right. The stakes are incredibly high for progressive goals. And so that's kind of why I want, I'm very angry about a lot of what I saw and experienced in part because I am so progressive. So I wanted to tell this whole story, but, but I do come out of it feeling that there's value in the, in the kind of battle scars. So, I mean, at, at the end, you, you, uh, you do have, uh, um, you have a you have a a hopeful ending to it. I guess that's the other mm-hmm. the other question uh, because it's it's again watching the the events of the last few weeks. It's and just hearing you just what you're saying just now, you know, it's a question of uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, you, you, I think you put it authoritarianism versus you know, I guess a kind of competence. But it seems to me it's it's part of the problem is that so much of our public life is just driving towards ungovernability. And you don't see that just in the United States. You see it all across the West. And I, there's that, there's a, you have that anecdote at the beginning where I, I guess you're, you're just, uh, you just uh, won the mayorship and you, you go to a, the, the uh, you know, city mayor's meeting in Washington and you meet with Obama and he's sort of joking with you guys saying, saying uh, you feel yeah. underappreciated, yeah. don't you? But but it's well, that's just a testament, yeah. right, to the fact that that government yeah. moves slowly. That deliberative government needs yeah. to move slowly. And as you say, yeah. I mean, everything in our world right now is just not attuned to that. So I mean, absolutely, Trump is a master at this, and he 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 plays it. I mean, I, this 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 thing that he did just now, just what is it, two days ago, uh, where he cleared the uh, the peaceful protesters in Lafayette Square and, and did that photo op. I mean, it's 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 breathtaking symbol manipulation, even just there to me. I mean, I watched that, and, and that's. You know, he's he's he it was a it was a uh, at one stroke just making it impossible to to occupy any any sort of meaningful center because, you know, anything like that is uh, just inconceivable after something like that. And I think this is where our political discourse is now. So, again, you know, can you can you maybe think about or talk a little bit about the end of the book, your your optimism and and can you reassess it a little bit or talk about, you know, how can we. You know, Shadi is really big on agonism in politics, and you talk about that as well. And and uh, yeah. maybe just let's let's just talk about that a little bit. But I, also, I, think, yeah, but I should Shadi. also note that, um, as you probably know, like uh, me and also Demir, I mean, we're pretty we're generally somewhat pessimistic in how we view things. Um, I have more of an idealistic streak than Demir does. He's kind of given up hope on the on the human race. I, you know, Mike, you might remember from back in the day. Um, when we were debating and also working together on different things that, 
you know, I've I've always believed in what America can do beyond its borders, um, supporting democracy, living up to our own oh, yeah. ideals and all that. At the same time, you know, when all these things keep on happening year in and year out, you know, I think one thing that I've come to appreciate more and more in the interim since we talked last uh, many years ago um, is that, um, you know, the dark, the darkness of human nature, that that darkness can very easily come out. And that has to make us a little bit more humble and modest about what we can actually, you know, accomplish in this world, um, in this imperfect, flawed world. And um, so, I mean, how much how much would you temper the optimistic tone that you that or the semi optimistic tone that you that you end on in the book? Because you look at everything that's going on now, covid um, police brutality, rioting, Trump's very scary response in terms of threatening to bring in the military and deploy them, deploy the military in states. How do you do? You, I mean, you wrestle with the with the optim, you know, optimism versus darkness in the book, and you know, even in some ways, if you know, I don't know if you would agree with this characterization, but you go into the mayorship with idealism. And you're excited about what's possible. And I think that in some ways, you know, your book is a tragedy of of what happens when hopes and ideals are shattered by the messy reality of human beings who are some of them are bad. Some of them are even worse than bad, let's say. But some of them are good, but are very flawed. Like you talk about some of the folks on the city council with you. They're, they're They're not bad people. But they're very flawed and they kind of mess things up. And it's sad to me because, you know, my, I, I, you know, especially when I was younger, um, I, you know, with Obama, I remember in 2000, uh, 2008 with Obama. Okay. First of all, constitutional law professor. He lived in Muslim majority countries, Indonesia. He has a Muslim yeah. father. He knows about the world. And I had this, like, this was to me. Yeah. This yeah. this this is what I had hoped for. And then to see what happened to Obama and yeah. how it didn't work out the way we planned. And, and, you know, you had less power, obviously, but you you went in with a lot of hopes as well. And this key this story keeps on repeating itself. Yeah. Anyway, you know, the, I go on about the whole like uh, Obama yeah. disappointment yeah. stuff. And you yeah. you probably know a little bit how I feel about that. But yeah, anyway. But you also believe if I can, I mean, for having read some of what you've written, you, you, you believe that claims of democratic collapse are overstated. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I, I think a lot, I mean, let me like, let me try to take your question at kind of the biggest, most macro level. Um, I, I, I was having a debate actually one time with, uh, with Tom Perriello, you know, I mean, we, we were talking to the former congressman from here who I helped on his campaign. Um, and we were talking about how, so much, so much depends on one's answer on a very simple question, which is, do you believe that history moves in a straight line uh, in terms of our progress? Or do you believe that we are arcing upward? Whether you go back to, you know, Kant or Hegel or whoever, any of these, you know, encyclopedia names, I mean, you're, it's a, it's a basic question. It's a, theological question it's a philosophical one it's one you know if you don't believe any of those things it's like just a human nature one do you believe that the human condition is basically about the same 
as it's been for thousands of years, and it will be about the same in thousands of years from now in terms of progress, or do you believe that we are arcing upward and that we have the potential to arc upward? Or do you believe that we're going downward, which, which a lot of people believe? And there are really different opinions on that. I mean, some people believe that, you know, like the quantum of violence that people do to each other just changes forms and stays about the same. So, you know, as much progress as we had in the 20th century, we still had both world wars and we had um, unbelievable suffering. And then some people believe that the human condition is, is progressing. And I, I just have believed that the human condition is progressing and I've had to look deep within myself or was that a, you know, is, does it have religious underpinnings? Is it a, is it a philosophical thing? Is it a, is it a um, evolutionary idea? And I think for me personally, it, it's all those things. I don't, I don't think it's metaphysical. It's not, you know, what, what uh, Hegel was writing about where he talks about like a universal spirit that literally is like something up in the clouds that's pulling us upward. But so when I think about, am I optimistic about, the the you know the agonistic the conflict the way that conflict generates progress which is the argument of the book i look at american history and i see these these missteps and these self-defeating things that have come from within like jim crow laws or mccarthyism and then i look at what has followed them because conscientious people who are educated in and committed to the constitutional project took those offenses and did something against them and with them. And it's a dynamic, very violent process a lot of the time. And I, you know, I, I wanted to tell the story because I felt like I was both kind of like a bit player in it and also kind of a casualty of it in some ways. And certainly, you know, like a sponge for all the emotions that were coming as people were fighting this out. But I, I just, I, I believe that, uh, that this, you know, this flowering of violent white nationalism, um, not just Charlottesville, but like the Tree of Life murders and El Paso, that they are going to give birth to and become something else as an educated country that cares about constitutionalism, absorbs them and reacts against them. And I believe that about Donald Trump. I think that when you have a demagogue um, in, a, in an educated uh, committed constitutional country, they're an incredible test to the country. And where the open question is in my whole take on all this, and I'm very, very, uh, I mean, the book is a lot about this question is it's not a foregone conclusion, though, like we could start tilting toward authoritarianism, if people like us, if anybody citizens don't take matters into their hands, as citizens, which means resisting and getting engaged and running for office and advocating and pressuring and legislating and suing and prosecuting and journalists writing the right stories and philanthropists funding the right organizations. And it's a battle. I think that like, if I draw way back, I think that this battle against Trump, like right now, what's happened even in the last 48 hours with this egregious, horrific thing that he did with using tear gas and these, these private security forces they apparently have hired in, in Washington who don't even have insignia and badges that they're cobbling together. Um, it is, it is like the worst thing you could think of from the, from the textbook of demagogues in history. But then James Mattis just came out today, his former defense secretary, like as you know, right before I got on this interview with you guys 
And that's an act of courage and an act of resistance. And that is also part of this dynamic process about how constitutional democracy overcomes its its traumas and its and its offenses. And so uh, I wanted to the story. I mean, uh, there's a lot that I did that I tried to do, and some of them were mistakes and some of them were overreaches. But I, I saw myself very I mean, you know, when I was mayor, I led this effort to try and stop Trump at the Electoral College which I talk about. And that's relevant only because it fits into this kind of bigger picture about how we're all trying to keep history moving along on this arc. And when you have anti-democratic forces that are surfacing in a distempered age, it is going to require hammers and tongs and everything with the kitchen sink and a lot of missteps and a lot of mistakes. But we are all and that is the agony. That is the that is the the trauma. But I still, you know, if I look at what's happened following this murder of George Floyd, I am ending up in an optimistic position about where we're going to get on systemic racism and police brutality in this country. When I get frustrated is when I see activism dislocated from action. Like I got very frustrated with the Occupy movement, how it never actually plugged into the policymaking system and inequality got worse after the Occupy protests, right? So so my interest and commitment is in how do we act through government and how do we use resistance and opposing authoritarianism to actually move the country upward and uh, toward toward greater greater achievement of our own principles. And I still believe that we that we do that. So let me ask you a tough question on, on sort of on, on that is um, you know, we're seeing we're seeing people get very active. We're we're seeing resistance yeah. in any yeah. number of forms. Um, we're seeing things that I've been critical of, and I I've tried to temper my criticism because I feel like, yeah. I mean, I, honestly, like the intolerance of dissent on the left on on yeah. some of these questions and the stigmatization of anyone who diverges from a particular mm-hmm. line, this kind of woke extremism or woke, whatever you want to call it, that I've been seeing. And, you know, um, uh, where everything becomes about the color of one's skin, where it's like, okay, white people are all like inherently guilty, inherently shameful, bad, and they have to sort of, um, in a very patronizing way, uh, this this totemizing of people of color and supplicating before them as if to absolve themselves from sin. And it's it's very symbolic. So it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where politics becomes a battle of symbols and there's a lot of moral posturing. And uh, I've 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 always been uncomfortable with white liberals insisting to me, uh I'm not black, but I'm a person I guess I'm technically a person of color or a POC that, I mean, that's not how I saw myself before the Trump era, but now I guess, you know, that's become the term and I'm fine with it, except when POC becomes equivalent to victim, when people want to say, well, Hey, Shadi, you're the only Brown person in the room. You're the only Muslim in the room. And because of that, you're a victim and you have to have a certain set of views because you're Brown where that's never how I grew up. That's never how I saw myself. I saw myself as an American who happened to be a Muslim and not the other way around. So I'm seeing like these these white guilt rallies uh, where 
and I, I just like that it's symbol and it's not practice and it's not about people voting and it's not about actually changing in terms of specific policies. How like tell me tell me how you're you know this is all very sensitive stuff. It's difficult, you know, whatever. Yes. How how are you processing all that? Because I'm sure you've seen some of the same debates on Twitter that that, that Demir and I have seen. Um, well, the way that I'm that I'll respond to, what, to some of what you just said, I don't uh, is that I, you know, I, I tell some very specific raw stories about dealing with the absolutism and the intolerance that came from the left as well as obviously from the right. I mean, I was, you know, subjected to like blistering intimidation attempts and a lot of anti-Semitism from the right as a Jewish elected official. But there was a lot that I thought was totally unreasonable and ad hominem and um, bullying uh, and intolerant from from the left. And it was um, really rough. And I and I especially when it was aimed at shutting down debate and shutting down and stopping and kind of invalidating any, any opinion. And it was very interesting. Like I, I go into the book into some very specific times when black elected officials that we had would confront white liberals um, who were, who were in crowds and challenge them kind of on very similar grounds to what you just said, which is, you know, there was one time when Councillor Bellamy did this. There was another time when Mayor Nakia Walker did it. And I, I thought the stories were fascinating because they showed frustrations on all fronts with this kind of um, absolutist um, intolerance where, where, where it, you know, it became kind of about um, not about what was being achieved, but whether, you know, whether you were in the kind of the tribe or not in the tribe and, and kind of signaling things rather than kind of doing the work, as I think that that one of the elected officials put it. Um, um, okay. So go ahead, Sean. Yeah, it's fine. Okay. And you can hear me, Mike, now? I'm clear? Too. Yeah, when did... So I was like in the middle of this probably long-winded answer to... What, do you, what was... I think you cut out as you... We caught the first part of that, so maybe we'll just have to... We'll probably have to edit out that... that um, or just ask me again, and I'll, I'll try. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what we asked you. It was about um, it was about liberal intolerance and woke. Oh yeah, we caught quite a bit of that. So I think okay. what um, Demir, do you remember where what the last thing was? I don't because I got a panic attack after this started. <laughs> this started freaking out. <laughs> you know, and people probably caught the first part of that. So. I'm curious, maybe just to kind of continue that, and maybe maybe you had some of this on your mind in the part that we missed, but um, that how do you, um, does it bother you when you see kind of um, apologism, I guess you'd call it, for for violence or destruction of property, this kind of line that, Property can be replaced, but lives can't. So violence against property isn't actually violence. And maybe just to expand that a little bit, um, you know, I worry a little, I, I worry not just a little bit, but a lot about, you know, Trump supporters, MAGA folks who are seeing some of this 
um, hard left or woke response or whatever you want to call it. And they're like, this yeah. confirms our worst fears that if yeah. Democrats win or if the left has its way, that they want to take us into this uncharted territory of like abolish police, which is, you know, I don't yeah. want to, I don't want to exaggerate how big a part of yeah. uh, the discourse that is, but there are people who say those things. Some of them are prominent in the kind of in- intersectional space. What would you say to a MAGA person who's freaking out right now and thinks that this is just utter chaos and double standards and, and they're like, hey, Mike, you were a former mayor of Charlottesville. Um, we're not very politicized, but we were Republicans and we vote for Trump, even though we have issues with Trump and we think that he's not a great man. But, hey, he's better than the alternative. The alternative is yeah. not right chaos. Yeah. Like, do I mean, I'm sure, if, you know, as mayor of Charlottesville, I'm sure you had to engage with some of those folks and knowing you. You're not someone who ever wants to say that these people are uh, deplorables or irredeemable. So you believe in the kind of the agonistic outreach to people as long as they're willing to be respectful to you. Well, this is why I spent a lot of time in the book talking about the talking about what it was like art fighting for just the basic like precepts of of orderly debate in in city council proceedings because to me it was the tip of this much bigger iceberg which is are we going to devolve into a might makes right country uh where where these these commitments we have to being able to you know be competitors in a system with with kind of rules of the road are just going to be jettisoned which is what somebody what somebody like Trump believes, but this is why, of course, I mean, I'm 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 hugely committed to the rule of law and totally against rioting and property crimes. And I don't, you know, just like I thought heckling and disrupting somebody who's speaking from the dais was, I mean, it's a tiny, small thing compared to rioting and looting, but. I, I, you know, there's a, I, I talked a lot about the tradition of civil disobedience and all the, and all the ideas underneath civil disobedience and how it can be even more effective, whether you're looking at Gandhi or Martin Luther King or, or Thoreau talking about it, it is, it's generally because of what violent disobedience unleashes and the, and the set of events that it, that it kind of, that it starts and the fact that it can empower I mean, this isn't the, the there are many reasons to oppose violent disobedience and and uh, violent law breaking as your as your dissent. Um, many, I mean, not 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 just the law itself or the or the or whatever or who's harmed, but it's it can set into motion a chain of consequences that that are the worst outcome if you're. For, for your aims. So Richard Nixon was elected, was re-elected in, was elected in 1968. That was the worst outcome that you could have had after that year of protests, right? Um, uh, a lot of the time, and, I, and I w- I'd be incredibly concerned if, if Trump and his forces start to draw some strength from the law-breaking that's happening. That's kind of like a second order. It's like a political consequence analysis 
I just, as, as a lawyer and a constitutional thinker and somebody who's been in office, I just oppose lawbreaking. I think that you should advocate for your change through through civil disobedience. And we got into, you know, there's there's a whole, I mean, the book is like, you know, tells the very gory kind of gray area story about just dealing with what's called direct action. And direct action goes right over the line, you know, into into law breaking. And it was really, there, there was this awful incident that happened where anti-fascists, after the KKK came to town, the KKK left, and the anti-fascist group linked arms across the street and refused to yield the street to the police. And then they sort of pushed into a wall of police. The best practice that should have come out of this was the police should have basically not gotten into a pissing match and a, and a battle for territory. And they should have outlasted the protesters. That That's what good, smart police thinking would have would have done. But in the heat of battle and in the fog of this kind of situation, the police escalated. And they used tear gas to clear the street, and it, and it and it seeded the ground for for awful conflict later on, and mistrust of the police, and an unresolved situation because we never got the true story about why the tear gas was actually used, and the police said that there was pepper gel that was released by the counter protesters, but that didn't end up being the case. Several months later, when we had a report done, so it you know it, I I I think that. Violent, unlawful action, it both is is it's it's wrong because it's unlawful, but it also often will backfire and won't and won't affect the changes that that the activists are are looking for with it. And I and I oppose it on on all grounds. And I feel the same way right now about looting. I don't have any. Um, I, I I would I I I totally oppose that as a as a response to to the police brutality and what's happened. Um, and I think that you're more likely to have dramatic change. Like I was tweeting today, these pretty significant federal reforms that the leadership conference on civil rights were putting out. On, we're putting out. You're going to see significant change coming through laws and through policies and through protests, of course, and through people giving voice and the, the right to peaceably assemble. I mean, that's in the Constitution: peaceably assemble for a reason, and it can lead to significant change. So, so Mike, I mean, that's a, the the interesting question for me. Um, so, I, you know, just from earlier on, what what Shadi was saying, I, I think the other thing that that makes me and Shadi sort of on the same page is that we're not actually pessimistic about America and the ability for these things to happen. Yeah. I mean, I think your book is actually quite resonant for both of us in that sense that there is something about this country that it, it somehow manages to get through even these toughest times. Yeah. I guess the, the yeah. thing that 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 you know was interesting even in your last answer here and that I'd like to push you on a bit more um, and that's and that's the 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 question of um, well, what kind of reforms? On the one hand, you know, uh, just what you said now, you seem to be pretty optimistic that the street actions by you know Black Lives Matter, which is an internet phenomenon, it's an internet organized, you know, very broad based, mm -hmm. uh, led and organized, but but pretty also diffuse group that you know works through. Uh, in the internet, which involves a lot of symbols and a lot of, you know, mobilizing people through these sorts of things, that that will be effectively harnessed into uh, lawmaking and reforms. Um, I, I mean, I, that's heartening to hear. Um, the the question, I guess, that I'd ask you is, uh, uh, I guess my concern, let me put it this way and get your reaction. My concern mm -hmm. is that 
that maybe what you know how you at the in the book you 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 reintroduce Robert's rule of rules of order to sort of you know mm-hmm. make government mm-hmm. work better. I wonder if if we're we need to be thinking more profoundly about what government has to look like in this age. Is it possible mm-hmm. that that the modes and the ways that we deliberate aren't quite right? Or maybe a different way to put it, maybe a little more, little bit more uh, nerdy political science-y, uh, in the sense that like one of the big pressures of technology is direct democracy, and we're wired mm-hmm. to be a representative democracy. Um, mm-hmm. what it, how, do you, how do you parse that? How do you, how do you harness this, what is really direct democracy, which is the internet and all of this stuff, and direct democracy yep. is not deliberative? How do you do you do we adapt to be more direct or do we think of ways to adapt uh, representative yeah. democracy well, into this new reality? Yeah. Yeah. So as I've reflected on all the things that I, you know, both that I'm proud of, but also that I think that I wish I could have done better and adapted more quickly. Um, I think that my, you know, my own learning as just one, you know, one elected official is I, I wish that I could have figured out a better way of, of um, more quickly adapting to the, to the environment you're talking about and, and engaging and making people feel listened to and heard when they're arriving to you through all these new media while still upholding all the values that I, you know, I've described through this whole interview of deliberation, of facts, of calming things down, of focusing on action, of, um, you know, of resisting uh, just symbolic actions. But, you know, I, 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 I made a decision, you know, when I was in office that I wasn't going to engage on social media. I found it impossible to do because there are these rabbit holes. If you go down a Facebook comment thread or a Twitter thread, but, you know, the problem is that so many people are are engaging in that way. And, you know, it's interesting, our communications director forever resisted in the city of Charlottesville, just even putting city council meetings on Facebook Live. She just resisted it and wouldn't do it. And then our new communications director just ended up doing it. He just kind of flipped the switch and got some new cameras and hired a vendor or whatever. And then all of a sudden we're on Facebook Live and you have a totally different way for people to interact how we are going to stand for deliberation and for the representative model, which is what you're talking about, which is funneling all this opinion and all these reactions through to some deliberative process where your representatives work together, that's still a necessity, right? But the way that you engage with people and make them feel heard and register their opinion and interact with them, that's all changeable. And I think that we all need to do, we need to do a better job. Like the, the current mayor of Charlottesville, she holds these Facebook live sessions where she interacts with hundreds of people just sitting at her computer and reacting in real time to people who she knows, you know, popping up on Facebook Live. I never did that. And it's something I probably, you know, if I ever get back into the in the in the politics or government in the future, I probably should because it's it's you just kind of have to get in your zone. And I've been doing it recently. I've been actually dealing with Twitter a lot and I'll like I'll like respond to a lot of comments that I think are ridiculous or full of <laughs> full of full of uh you know slander or false assertions and i'll respond i've been doing it recently and i'm like well you know i never did this before but it is i i I knew a communications expert recently and she was like you really need the thing about now is that because a lie does get around the world while the truth is getting its boots on you really do need to respond as opposed to in the old communications model and politics was you would let 
bad things just die out and lose steam and they don't lose steam now. They, they race around the internet. So you have to actually proactively respond. So I think that, you know, and this is all setting aside, you know, more dramatic reforms like ranked choice voting, which is a way of dealing with extremism in politics by rewarding politicians who move to the center uh, or, you know, open primaries where it rewards people who are pursuing votes on both sides. And I think we we desperately need those kinds of reforms because you have to have structures that are dealing with polarization and tribalism and extreme you know, extremism across the political spectrum. So the political system needs to not just like reflect it and embrace it, but actually address it and try and calm it down and try and reward uh, politicians and, and servants who, who want to work on things rather than just, you know, like Steve King was just defeated. Hallelujah. Oh, wow, that happened. Uh, in Iowa, okay. it amazing, amazing things, right. But it took a freaking long time. And and so I, I think that, you know, if there's a takeaway from the book, it's that, and I have a whole section at the end, obviously, that's about specific innovations against extremism that I think are being spawned by Charlottesville and in response. And that's a whole story. But at this bigger level of how do we reclaim representative, deliberative governance in this time of, of you know, of, of hurricane force winds against this island of, of, you know, contemplation where we're actually just just sitting and deliberating on things. I I do think that you're correct. I think that we need to adapt and we need to to deal with we need to to deal with people as they're coming to you. And I I'm the first to say that I you know just I I, I would ask people to read the book and look at my story and say, well, how could how could you have done better? How could I have done better? Would you still be um, as semi optimistic if Trump wins in November? I mean, you know, they're as we sort of alluded to, that he could benefit from what's going on now and use that no, to... It his... really worries me. I, I, I you know, I, I, just, I appreciate that question. And I've, like, you know, my book, Demagogue, which you talked about, Shadi, yeah. um, which was a 2009 book, and it was mostly, uh, a lot of it was about foreign policy because at that time you had, you know, democratization was the announced policy of the United States under George Bush. So we had this whole push for, you know, the, you had the Millennium Challenge account, and then you had Hugo Chavez and Ahmadinejad. You had these, you had... Um, the good old days. Dem- demagogues on the world stage, right. And that was before Trump comes up. And um, and I was, uh, that book is the most optimistic book in the world. And I, and I talk about how it's unlikely that in America will see a demagogue. And so I, you know, in a lot of the writing that I have been doing over the last few years and the, and the, the speaking, like on... I mean, I wrote, you know, I've written articles for the Washington Post, several about Trump as a demagogue, and it has really tested my faith and it has tested my idea and my commitment and my my optimistic thesis. So I'm not coming into this, you know, I'm coming into it kind of chastened and also very wary. And, you know, the the um, I've been reading Plutarch recently because what he's doing in in the nine lives and the fall of Athens is he's trying to trace out how did Athens decline through these biographies that he sort of reconstructed 300 years later in Rome of these leaders of Athens and how, what, what were they doing and not doing and how were they reacting to, you know, foreign policy missteps to the, 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 you know, the mob in many cases. And, the the kind of biggest thing that I take away there is 
kind of a theme of this whole conversation, which is none of this is foregone. Like you, you can come in with an optimistic thesis with a lot of evidence for it. But what I've said to you guys is that all of it depends on right action and some success against punishing headwinds. Yeah, you know, so, and, and that's, and that, that's my, I still believe that. And I think the fight, I think what, what's fascinating about demagogues is they really do represent the kind of devil in the system of democracy and they are, they are within us. And so they, they test you, they test, they, they, they are a test, they're a test just like our own inner demons are. And so Trump is this brutal mortal threat to the integrity of our democracy and he is right there right in front of us every step that he's followed has been predictable and worse even than than it could have been just like creating a private army just the last couple of days and doing this horrific thing with the tear gas and so the fight is very real and it requires uh, and it's going to be very costly and there's already a lot of people who have who have been injured in this in this fight but the fight is is worth the fighting for and the outcome is still very much within our grasp, I, I believe. But that doesn't, if he wins re-election, I will, my faith will have, will be, will be de- deeply shaken. Yeah, that, that to me is the biggest test. November 8th, if uh, Trump wins. Oh 100%. boy. Oh boy. I, I don't even, like the thought of even dealing with what our country is going to look like if that happens. And, you know, you know, I think quite literally people, 100%. A, lot, a lot of people will, be, will give up, give up faith in the democratic idea. Cause it's like, fine, he wins the first time. And that was a pretty close call, whatever. He became an increasingly bad president and a scary president towards the end and COVID and everything and threats about the military. And then he wins a second time. I mean, I just, to, 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 I don't know how people are going to process that. Um, you know, and you know, I'm a big proponent of respecting democratic outcomes, even if they're terrible, but not everyone, you know, prioritizes that. Uh, anyway, but I mean, we're, we're getting, uh, closer to the end of our time. You know, um, that was a very serious note, obviously, and a pessimistic one. Yeah. Just to kind of, uh, light, you know, lighten it up a little bit. I'm just, you know, hearing you talk, Mike, and, you know, reading your book and and all that, I'm thinking to myself, hey, I think Mike should run for higher office. Literally, my question, too. What's next, Mike? (laughs) We were like, so basically, both Demir and I, we've been thinking, what should Mike run for? (laughs) No, no, serious joke. I mean, serious questions. Are you are you thinking of getting back in the game? Uh so my honest answer is uh, is I'm not right now. I th- this book was a is part of the process of how do I uh, l- literally process what what I you know what I what I did, what I tried to do, what this experience was. I mean it was it was about as intense um as as a as an experience in elective office I think can be and I I'm, I'm in this um Aspen Institute fellowship program called the Rodell Fellows, where there's 12 Democrats and 12 Republicans, and you spend this year and a half together. And and it's a, a really extraordinary group of people. And there's been a lot of that several people ran for president this last time who were alum, alumni of this program, Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg. And so I, I you know, I have this this cohort of, of people who are in office and some who were out of, who are out of office now. And we we kind of work these questions around. Um, privately with each other about where, where and how do you want to make the most 
difference and have the most impact. And so I've now, you know, tried my hand at this one office and, and been a mayor and have a lot of life experience. And I think, and I hope some really good impacts. And I, I talk a lot about things I'm very proud of in the book. Um, and I now, you know, now is kind of this mulling period where I'm, I'm reflecting on it all. And I've got two five-year-old boys, you know, right at this time, which is, which is also, you know, your life is a big part of politics. And if you have your life well-ordered, um, and I talk in the book about how hard that part was in this particular office, kind of being a part-time mayor and having a day job and having a very young family and having to deal with all these. So I think challenges. So I, you know, the book talks a lot about wisdom as kind of the end path. I, I go into the book of Proverbs and, and as I had my, my own hardest private moments grappling with what it was like making mistakes and bearing all this responsibility and dealing with these kind of impossible questions, having so many people so angry at me at the situation. And I was, you know, I, I, I feel that the end product of all this is wisdom. And my question now is what do I use that wisdom for? I, I certainly bear it humbly. You know, I think the book holds it and I wrote the book to try and share it. I think there is a lot that this story produced um, and I, and I, I honestly don't know. I'm, I, it's part of a process that my wife and I are, are going through right now and whether it's going to include getting back in an elective office, I, I don't know. I don't know right now sitting here in, in May of 2000 or is it June? Did it just become June? June, June of 2020. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, but I know I'm, you know, I know that, that I care a lot about it and I think we need leaders and we need leadership and we need people, especially to go into elective office. Um, but as for what I'm going to do, I, I honestly don't know. Melissa, Mike, I mean, I, I think that you have our our vote. I don't know if we'll be able to vote for whatever <laughs> office you're running for. Thank you. But, um, you know, I, I'm curious, so like being, being in Charlottesville now as the former mayor, I mean, you're sort of in a way the Barack Obama of Charlottesville in a way, <laughs> if I can put it that way. You're like a mini celebrity because it's like a somewhat intimate, um, you know, college mm -hmm. town or whatever. I mean, when you're walking around going to the coffee shop, do people just like, I'm sure it's very friendly and very casual where they'll, you know, hey, hi, former mayor, hi, Mr. I don't know what they call you. All the time. All the time. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so I was sitting doing an interview actually with a reporter about this book. And this guy who works at the coffee shop was sort of waiting very politely. And he came up and I'd, I'd, I'd seen him before, but I didn't know him. And he, and he kind of interrupted. He said, I just want to thank you for everything you did. And he said, I know you were put through a lot. And I watched other people shouting you, but I felt like you always were trying. And I was like, I said to the reporter, I was like, honestly, that was not staged. Like, I didn't, I didn't know <laughs> this guy. And, you, you, you know, it's, it's such a small city with, with it's 50,000 people and with such a, a core. You know, you, you have a very, um, it's the opposite of centrifugal. Like people, there's really a, a center in Charlottesville, and people, it's the neighborhoods, the downtown mall, and the and the hearts of the neighborhoods. And so you always feel like you're kind of headed. You know, you, you, there are a lot of places to see people you know, and and yeah, a lot of the time I'll be. It got to the point where I had this sort of monthly lunch with a friend of mine where we had to not sit in public because so many people would come up or wow. or pull me away <laughs> that you just couldn't, you couldn't, I couldn't sit with them. I could, you couldn't have a sustained conversation. And that, and now the the kind of the hot the spotlight is off of me. There's still a lot of that. There's a lot of that, but it's 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 calmer and it's quieter, and people have the chance to come up and say things that they were thinking and have reflected on. And so it's been it's actually been really nice. 
Fascinating, yeah. Well, listen, Mike, it's been it's really been great to have you, and I, I really, Thank you. Um, you know, we we have um, loyal listeners, and I I would really highly recommend uh, for them to buy this book on Amazon, IndieBound, wherever the cool kids are buying their books now. If you don't like buying books, rent it from your local library whenever they open. I guess they probably should soon. Um, you know, it's funny, Demir. My mom's been angry about the local library in uh, Wayne, Pennsylvania. Not, she's like, wait a second. We can reopen outdoor cafes, but the library is still closed. What's going on here? You don't agree with your mom. On this, on this I do. I mean, people people got to check out. Red, I was going to say red books, but I realized that's not the right term. Check out books is what people do at libraries. But, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an excellent book. And I'm just happy that I had an opportunity um, thank you to so read much. it and, and to discuss it with you. So thank you, Mike, for, for being a part of this. We'll include a link to the book on the show notes so people can just click on that and learn more about uh, learn more about the book. Um, and hope, Mike, that we stay in touch and at some point um, in post-COVID or post-post-COVID times that actually we, you know, I see you and get a chance to hang out again. Moreover, Mike, we usually try and record this live. This this COVID nonsense is, is, uh, has, has ruined things. The whole idea is that we sit here uh, in my living room and, and just sort of hang out. So it's been great. Really a pleasure meeting you like this. Uh, but hopefully next time you can be on the couch here with us. Oh, that would be great. I would love that. Wonderful. Okay, Mike. All right. Talk to you soon. Thank All you, right. guys. Okay. I really appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. Stay healthy.